Tonight I want to tell you a couple of stories about a husband and wife who lived at the time of the Buddha. Their names were, are in the suttas, they're called Nikulapita and Nikulamata. Pita means father and Mata is mother, so apparently they were Nakula's parents. But as far as I know, we don't know anything about Nakula. But these two were married when they were very young. And the way it's put is uh, when Nakula Pita talks about it, he says, ever since Nakula Mata was given to me in marriage at a very young age, I've never transgressed against her even in thought, let alone in words or deeds. And then Nikula Mata speaks, and she says the same thing. From the time when I was, when he was very young, I was very young, and I was given in marriage to Nikula Pita. I've never transgressed against him, even in thought, let alone in word or deed. And they say to the Buddha, we would like to be in one another's sight, not only in this life all the time, but also in the next life. How can we make that happen? And at this point, you wonder, what's the Buddha going to say? But he knew what to say. He said, be the same in faith, the same in virtue, the same in generosity, and the same in wisdom. And then it will be possible for you to be together again in the next life. So that tells me a few things, tells us a few things. You know, first of all, these two were really a match. Um, they really uh, were good together. And that idea that we are reborn with, could be reborn, and in a relationship again with someone from what I hear, is quite common. I think those times when someone says, you know, they fell in love at first sight, there must be, I think there's probably some deep memory there, connection. And with these two, when, when the Buddha says this about, you know, having the same faith, the same wisdom, the same virtue, the same generosity. It's the, and he says in other places that like attracts like. So, you know, to, to really have those qualities matching, then you're going to be in a place where those qualities are that way. And this other person is too. 
Now, I think it's also implied, and certainly when we can follow Nikola Pita and Nikola Mata, they were really excellent people. They had really good characters. So their level of virtue and faith and generosity and wisdom were quite high, which is also inspiring. And they really loved visiting the Buddha and his disciples, his monastic disciples. And then there comes a time when Nikula Pita becomes very ill. It looks like he's probably going to die. And his wife says to him, don't pass away with concerns. Concern is suffering. And the Buddha says it's not good to die with concerns. So she says, now, you might think when I'm gone, the housewife, Nicola's mother, won't be able to provide for the children and keep up the household. But you should not think like this. I'm skilled in spinning cotton and carding wool. I'm able to provide for the children and keep up the household. Don't pass away with concerns. And she says, you might think, when I've gone, the housewife, Nikula's mother, will take another husband. But you shouldn't think, you shouldn't see it like this. Both you and I know that we've remained celibate well at home for the past 16 years. So don't pass away with concerns. And this, this is a, a common thing with couples who are spiritual practitioners. Thank you. Thank you, Lola. Um, so I, I've been telling a little bit about the ordination we went to last weekend. And did I mention that it was both the husband and wife got ordained? Yeah, so same kind of situation. Then she says, you might think, when I've gone, the housewife Nakula's mother won't want to see the Buddha and his Sangha mendicants. But you should not see it like this. When you've gone, I want to see the Buddha and his mendicant Sangha even more. Don't die with concerns. You might think the housewife Nicola's mother won't fulfill ethics. 
In other words, she won't keep up her virtuous behavior. But you should not see it like this. I am one of those white-robed disciples of the Buddha who has internal serenity of heart. Whoever doubts this can go and ask the Buddha. He's staying in the land of the Bhagas on a crocodile hill in the deer park of Vaisakala's wood. So don't pass away with concerns. You might think the housewife Nicola's mother has not gained a basis, a firm basis, and solace in this teaching and training. She has not gone beyond doubt, got rid of indecision, and gained assurance. And she's not independent of others in the teacher's instructions. But you should not see it like this. I am one of those white-robed disciples of the Buddha who has gained a basis, a firm basis and solace in this teaching and training. I've gone beyond doubt, got rid of indecision, and gained assurance. I'm independent of others in the teacher's instructions. Whoever doubts this can go and ask the Buddha. This is a way of saying she's a stream enterer at that minimum. And then, as Nikola's mother was giving this advice to Nikola's father, his illness died down on the spot. And that's how he recovered from that illness. Soon after recovering, leaning on a staff, he went to see the Buddha, bowed down and sat down to one side. And the Buddha said to him, you're very fortunate, so very fortunate to have the housewife Nikula's mother advise and instruct you out of kindness and compassion. She is one of the white-robed disciples of the Buddha who fulfills their ethics. She is one who has internal serenity of heart. She is one who has gained a basis, a firm basis, and solace in this teaching and training. She has gone beyond doubt, got rid of indecision, and gained assurance. She is independent of others in the teacher's instructions. You are fortunate, so very fortunate, to have the housewife Nikula's mother advise and instruct you of compassion and kindness. So, I find this story inspiring. Obviously, Nikula Pita did too. And, this kind of idea of at least one uh, hint about how to be with someone as they're passing away, as they're getting ready. And also this kind of comes back to our earlier uh, kind of thought about how back in the day, People might just, you know, die of an illness any time, more likely than now, with modern medicine. 
but to see, um, I find it inspiring to see how she anticipates what might be on his mind and helps to reassure him. It's, there's none of this like, oh, don't go. Please don't leave me. No hint of her concerned or struggle. And of course, it doesn't mean that if we're feeling that struggle, um, that we have to like somehow act like it's not there. I'm not saying that. But what does it tell us about how we want to live our own life and be in our own relationships? You know, this is something I think that is good to reflect on as part of letting go. You know, we want to let go of our clinging and expectations of others we can also help them let go of their clinging and expectations for us. Does that make sense? Just some thought. I think it's useful to think about how we want to develop our mind from here on and on. So I just thought that would be a story that might provide some food for thought. And then there's one more about Nicola Vita. This is when he's gotten to be very old. And he comes to see the Buddha. And he says, I am an old man, elderly and senior. I'm advanced in years and I've reached the final stage of my life. My body is ailing and I'm constantly unwell. I hardly ever get to see the esteemed mendicants. May the Buddha please advise me and instruct me. It will be for my lasting welfare and happiness. That's so true, householder. That's so true, for this body is ailing, trapped in its shell. If anyone dragging around this body claimed to be healthy even for a minute, What's that but foolishness? So this is the Buddha's attitude about the body in general, not just Nikula, Nikula's, Nikula Pita's body. You should train yourself like this. Though my body is ailing, my mind will be healthy. And then the householder and Nikula's father approved and agreed with what the Buddha said. He got up from his seat, bowed, and respectfully circled the Buddha, keeping him on his right. He went up to Venerable Sariputta, bowed, and sat down. 
Now in this part, Venerable Sarkar just says to them, Wow, you're radiant. Did you just get a Dhamma shot from the Buddha? And this is something that Ayajatananda um, was mentioning to me earlier today after uh, talking about Ratapala and how he immediately, you know, was um, wanting to become a monk and then got enlightened so quickly. And, and uh, she said, you know, can you imagine what it must have been like to be in the Buddha's presence, to hear the teaching from him directly, that probably had a huge impact on people in their practice. So Nakula Pita is radiant and venerable, starting to to ask him if he was in the Buddha's presence and if he got a Dhamma talk. And he says yes, and he tells him what it was. And then Venerable Sariputta says, but did you ask him what he meant? By how, when your body is ailing, your mind is healthy? And he says, no. But you could tell me. And then Venerable Sariputta says um, something like, Does it say that in here? No, I guess not. Sometimes when this happens and someone goes to one of the monks or nuns, they say, hey, you should have asked the Buddha when you had his attention. <laughs> You're coming to me like chopped liver over here by comparison. <laughs> but that's not what happens here. So he says, okay. He says, how is it when a person's body is ailing and the mind is ailing too? He said it's when an un uneducated, ordinary person has not seen the noble ones or is skilled or trained in their dhamma and their, and their qualities. So this is just, you know, I think of myself, like, and I can remember being you know, not knowing about the Dhamma, the kinds of mistakes we talked about, or I talked about earlier, that I feel like I made in those days. And it's like, um, I just didn't know. And the Buddha says that. He talks, he contrasts the kind of ordinary person with someone who's heard the Dhamma and is practicing Dhamma. And I as those who are untaught, ordinary, and the noble ones, noble disciples. And when he talks about the suffering that we can create, he says, but that's how it is for someone who doesn't know. And this is something that I find helpful when thinking about the past. It's like, if you regret something from the past, it's like, but that's how it is when you don't know. And even if you had an idea that maybe you were doing something that you shouldn't do, at a deep level, we didn't know the real consequences, the heaviness of it. So I think it's very useful 
as a as a supporter for forgiveness. So he so here Venerable Sariputta is saying for someone who hasn't heard the Dhamma and doesn't see things in this way, then they they think of their body as them, as you know, you probably have heard this before, as the self. Or as the self having the body, or as the body being in the self, or the self being in the body, some way that soul and body are related, you might say. This idea of an eternal, ongoing self. And they think, I am form, or I am this body. This body is mine. And when their form changes, decays, and perishes, and perishes, it gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. And they have the same about feeling, perception, When it comes to Sankara, it can be hard to translate. Some of the earlier translations are volitional formations or mental formations. And right here, I've got the translation from Bhante Sujata, which is more um, recent. And he uses the word choices. So the mental activity involving choice we think we own that, or that that is somehow a part of us. And the same with sense consciousness. And when these things change, when they decay, we're distressed. So that's how a person is suffering sick in the body and also ailing in the mind. But how is it when you're ailing in the body but healthy in the mind? It's when an educated noble disciple who has heard the Dhamma, who is practicing the Dhamma and developing in the Dhamma does not Think of the body as self, it's not me, it's not mine, or any of those other ways that it might relate to the body. So when it decays and perishes, it doesn't give rise to sorrow, limitation, pain, sadness, and distress. They don't regard feeling in that way, or perception, or choices, or consciousness. Taking it not as a self, not as mine. Can we can we step away from the body enough to really recognize that it has its own process, its own life? Can we let go of it enough for that? So what really happens, you know? Um, the, there are other 
places in the suttas where the Buddha says that at that point when you feel a meaningful feeling, you feel it detached. When you feel a pleasant feeling, you feel it detached. When you feel a feeling that's neither pleasant nor painful, you feel it detached. It's not upsetting, it's not exciting. It's just feeling. The same with perceptions, the same with thoughts. The Buddha called this one of the miracles of the Tathagata. There's a story where some of the monks are talking about all the miracles that happened when the Buddha was born. And the Buddha walks in and he asks, they stop talking and he asks what conversation he interrupted. And they start to list all these wonders that happened when he was born. And the Buddha says, well, there's one other miracle associated with the Tathagata. The Tathagata knows that a feeling is just a feeling, and a thought is just a thought, and a perception is just a perception. And this is really helpful when we get wrapped up in things. To realize that we can step away and just see it as a process that's unrelated to who we are. When we think of all the things that will fall away, that if we cling to them, we suffer, and if we let go, we have peace. And certainly, all of those aggregates or khandhas are in that category. And as we reflect on this and we recognize in a moment when we're struggling with something and we can really acknowledge that this isn't me and it isn't mine. It's a process that's Operating, I have some influence over the body, but not that much. So much of our suffering comes from trying to control or maintain something that is not under, not something we control and can control, and is naturally falling apart by its very nature. And that's the nature of this world and everything in it. So recognizing that there is, you might say, solid ground in the Dharma and awareness in the present moment. That, and, and this is something that we see, that we experience through our practice, through meditation, through, our in, through insight. It, 
It's amazing that human beings can, I want to say, channel or generate or I don't even know how to describe it, spiritual energy. Have you ever walked into a place where people pray, meditate, praise, and feel it? This comes from human beings coming together and connecting to that spiritual energy, embodying it. And this happens to us individually in meditation, and it happens to us when we come together collectively. Human beings have this ability to, we might say, create this field of goodness. It comes from good qualities, and it comes from that uplift of the heart. I heard someone once, um, we were participating in an Earth Day at Spirit Rock, a series of speakers on climate change and the kinds of things we can do about it. It was quite a while ago. And this one uh, woman, teacher, Dhamma teacher, talked about, you know, that feeling in the forest when, you know, the trees are, you know, so, um, I don't know, give such a sense of peace and groundedness. And she said, if you have a group of people practicing together, the feeling, the energy that's produced in that is even much more profound than what you feel in a grove of old growth trees. And I think, and I know she's right. It's like we have this spiritual spark in us, this spiritual resonance. And you know, the words in the suttas might feel a little foreign, but it's talking about human experience. How we can help uplift each other and we can help touch into that ourselves in our practice. Practice isn't meant to be dry. It's meant to be alive. And it, you know, like seeing or imagining, being there, watching Nicola Mata tell her husband about these things, it's not just the words, it's the inspiration, the feeling, the confidence that's based in the Dhamma and based in the development of her spiritual life. So, one of the things we can do for ourselves and each other is to really put attention on those qualities of kindness, of generosity, of honesty, of virtue, truth, keeping the precepts, the ways in which we come to stillness in ourselves, 
and how we develop wisdom. The four qualities that the Buddha talked about with Nakulapita and Nakulamata, wisdom, generosity, faith, and virtue, those four are mentioned frequently together in the suttas. And faith is this confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, Enlightenment Sangha. It's the confidence in enlightenment. It's the confidence in goodness. It's the confidence in a transformation. And holiness, you know, it's it's not taking some idea and just believing it because someone told us. It's the direct experience of Dhamma, the way things are, the spiritual side. And generosity actually is a translation for Pali word chaga. It's, it's different from Dhamma. It's a kind of giving that is renunciation. It's a kind of giving of what's hard to give. In, in Thai, Ajahn Ganha uses this word a lot called Siyasala. It's a Thai word. Siyasala is, I think, similar to this. It's giving what's hard to give. Giving what what you would have this impulse to keep for yourself, but you give it because you want this person to have it. And I see this in some of my friends, the ones sitting next to me for sure. And it's like Whenever she comes across something especially good, she wants to share it with me instead of keeping it to herself. It's that impulse of giving. It's also the, the framing of what we do, of everything that we do as a gift. So the, the chores that you're doing here while you're on retreat, if we have the attitude of this is a gift I'm giving to this community that has assembled here, it's a very different feeling than, oh, I just want to be meditating. I'm not saying any of you are feeling like that. But, you know, it, it's like we can change our experience so dramatically by the way we think. And this is part of training the mind. Recognizing that it is possible to cultivate these qualities, habits really, a way of seeing things and relating to each other that goes beyond the normal, how do I get what I want attitude or what's in it for me 
that's all around us in the world, all the time. We constantly get those messages. But we also get these other ones. We see people being generous everywhere. People who spontaneously risk their life to save someone else they don't even know. Human beings are pretty amazing. This is a realm with so much opportunity to give, to be kind, to love. And when that love really does go beyond the, the bounds, the bonds of attachment, it is incredibly powerful. So virtue, you know, really, in the suttas it says, seeing danger in the slightest fault. That can sound pretty perfectionistic. But actually it's much more about really tuning in to the results of our actions. And, and seeing how beautiful it is, what virtue really brings to the world, the kind of trust that all living beings can have in you because you keep those precepts, because you keep that standard of kindness and compassion and honesty. And virtue goes really deep. We can, you know, sometimes I think we think it's you know, the, the first step. So it's not so important. But it's absolutely essential for good meditation, for developing insight. It's, it's, um, it's renunciation of getting, doing what we want from a selfish perspective or a or from a place of not caring about other beings, but only by caring about our own comfort and enjoyment or or fear. And instead really having an ethic that takes us beyond that to a kind of unshakable safety. I mean, we're never going to be safe from, you know, in this realm. Anything that can happen to our body could happen to our body. But it doesn't have to happen to our mind. Like the Buddha is saying with the illness, it's also with other things. It's like when we really are serious about virtue, we don't have to fear. If someone 
harms us physically, they can't harm us mentally if we've got that that solid, clear virtue intact. One time when I was in Thailand, and Jaya Sarva, you may not know who these people are, but I would really recommend looking them up on YouTube because it's a treasure. And he's a British monk, and he's um, he was the abbot at the monastery where my son was living as a monk, and he talked about I lost my train of thought. Where was I? Hmm. I was in Thailand. Oh, I know. Thank you. That people can do things to your body and can be hurt, obviously. But he said, no one can hurt you mentally unless you participate. No, he's talking about adults. I want to clarify. But if we are learning how to train our own minds, and we're giving our minds the right kind of nutrition, that we can learn how to not be affected by what other people say or by what we see or hear. We don't have to be adversely affected. We can choose to set that aside, to recognize that, yeah, these things happen in the world. People have these ideas. And sometimes we we feel hurt because there's some truth in what we're told. But that's not the the sign that is to clean that up. It's okay. It's okay not to have all the ducks in the room all the time. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not see. But then when we see, yeah, okay. Some of you know the story Ajahn Chah used to say if someone criticizes you he said if they call you a dog they have to know that in Thailand like, at least in the old days a dog is like the lowest form of now they actually have you know pet dogs and stuff but back in the day in the village if someone calls you a dog that's pretty demeaning so he says, if someone calls you a dog, all you have to do is look and see if you have a tail. <laughs> when you can take care of that, and you don't have to be offended or angry or resentful. And these are some of the things that are very important to let go of. We don't want to carry any of that negativity with us at all. Negativity about what other people are doing or should be doing, what we've done in the past or should have done in the past or could have done in the past. It, let it go. 
And I know it. It's not as easy as just, oh, let it go. And none of what we're saying this week is meant to imply that we should try to cover up feeling that we have or, oh, just get over it. None of that. Because when, when, when we're suffering, when we have painful feeling, we follow the Buddha's advice and turn towards it. It's the first noble truth. We need to be with it, take care of it, observe it, understand it, before it can fall away. But we can also learn how to not become offended, how to not take those things seriously, how to put them in the right category from the beginning. And then we'll find that we feel differently when things happen. And all of these things that pull us down, it's like interference in that spiritual field that's so uplifting and comforting and supportive and communal and beautiful. So we learn how to love, how to be kind, how to be generous, how to let go of what we never could have owned anyway. And we become more and more happy and free, free from suffering, free from worry, free from anxiety, free from fear. And then we run up against these habits, these patterns that have been ingrained maybe for lifetimes where we come to that worry and fear. But we're already developing that space where we can stand on the solid ground of Dhamma and observe that pattern instead of being carried away with it. And it's uncomfortable or painful sometimes. And if we can step back from it enough to see it as an object, as a process that's running basically on its own, and we don't have to own, we just need to care for with kindness and observe. said that the way that this these patterns these are these are from the past they're old old karma when we react to something it's because of something from the past 
And we don't have to hold on to that and keep perpetuating those patterns. But when we when we experience them, the Buddha said that the way you rub it away, the way you you begin to cause it to disintegrate or weaken, that that pattern weakens is by coming in contact with it again and again. Become in contact with that old memory, that old way of thinking, that old way of acting, and you you don't follow it, you watch it. And by repeatedly observing it, turning towards it, like in the first noble truth, looking for what is giving it its power in the second noble truth, that where is the clinging? Where's the attachment? What's the motivation? And then we experience the relief once we see it and we don't follow it. And it's a simple formula and it works for everything. First, second, third, noble truth. Then the fourth noble truth, the path, that's what strengthens that ability to stand on that solid ground of time. So I'm going to leave that Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.